definitely felt like I was less likely to to have dramas to do with feeding. And I think it was it was definitely just less of a concern if you did sort of miss a little bit, like if the racing was happening, like it wasn't as big of a problem and you didn't have to be sort of as, as sort of stressed around the race either. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask sort of stuff that people are debating out on their training run or ride in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to try and find answers to. So we'll take that question, break it down, invite a guest expert in our A episode or an athlete or coach in our B episode to add their unique perspective as well. Today, it's episode 46B, what is metabolic flexibility and why should I care with former elite cyclist, Neil Vanderplug. So we discussed with Neil what prompted him to think about his metabolic flexibility, the approach that he took to try to change his metabolic flexibility, how this went and translated into performance, and his learnings in hindsight from doing that and what he'd do differently next time. But before we get into that, Steph, how are you going this week? You've obviously been a bit busy over the weekend because uh, we chatted yesterday and you had no idea about all the sporting results that had happened, and there was plenty of them. AFL Grand Final, Berlin Marathon, Cycling <laughs> World Championships. I'm sure there was plenty of others happening as well. <laughs> I did know what happened with the AFL Grand Final because I, I um, did end up watching that with some, with some friends, so I knew that one, um, which if you're a... Um, Sydney supporter, you probably didn't want to know the result of that. Mm. <laughs> but I was out mountain biking or getting mountain biking stuff sorted. So um, we got Tanya a, a mountain bike and, um, yeah, and then had some fun uh, on the trails. Our last time I might have been at Listerfield was with you actually, I think, mm. um, on the mountain bike. So, yeah, thankfully no crazy stacks, which was good. Um uh, but nice trails, although some trails were, were closed due to, um, you know, trees being knocked down and, and whatever. Uh, but, yeah, I can't believe I didn't know about the uh, marathon record being set. That's not that's not great for me. But, mm. yeah, it just shows that I was kind of tuning out of things and um, having a bit of a break. <laughs> yes, you call yourself a runner, Steph. I know, terrible. Well, I don't call myself a runner nowadays, so... <laughs> I, I, I snuffed that out with the five hours on the treadmill, did I? You did. You completely did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but how about you? It seems like you were keeping um, in the loop with all things sport on the weekend. I was. It was a massive weekend of sport, but it was great to sort of keep in touch with it. I didn't uh, manage to watch the marathon because it was sort of early evening and had kids to sort out. But, um, yeah, no, managed to um, watch the cycling and both the, the men's and women's road races were, were pretty incredible. So we'll talk a bit about that with Neil, actually, because he was he was there in Wollongong. Um, so that was good. But school holidays as well. Took the kids to the drive-in cinema oh, cool. um, on the Thursday. So, yeah, that yeah. was good. What did you watch? Um, Very important. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the new Minions movie? I can't even remember oh. what exactly it's called. But 
kids just call them minions one two and three were you watching or you were sleeping while the kids were watching <laughs> no I was watching I don't mind those movies They're yeah good yeah yeah so no that was good awesome mm. and um you um found out there's a conference that our listeners might want to listen to yeah well this is one I'm, I'm presenting at actually um ah. it's a an online conference nutrition conference it's called the we um or we nutrition conference so we is actually the first and the last letter from worldwide so it's designed to be a sort of a worldwide online conference uh, it's actually put together by professor asker yerkendrup who we had on episode 40a around how much carbohydrate should i have during my training session or race but the actual conference itself the time zone is not friendly for australia it's better if you're in europe or the us or canada mm-hmm. It's on Saturday, the 22nd of October. It's at 8.45 a.m. New York time, 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. UK time. Or mm-hmm. here, it starts at midnight on uh, Sunday, the 23rd of October and runs mm-hmm. into the early hours of that morning. So, yeah, not the most friendly time for Australians. But uh, if you're listening in the other part of the world, then it might be very much something you'd, you'd be into. So it's designed for both practitioners, coaches and athletes. So anyone can attend. And there's a whole bunch of speakers, this particular one, because they run several of them throughout the year. This particular one has Professor Dave Bishop from Victoria University here in Melbourne, and he's talking about supplements. Professor Joe Botel from the University of Exeter in the UK, she's talking about tart cherry juice, which we briefly discussed back in episode 38A. Uh, there's also Dr. Dana Lease from University of California, Davis, who was on episode 33A, actually talking about continuous glucose monitors. But in this particular conference, you'll be talking about collagen supplementation for athletes, which we also, again, touched on briefly back in episode 16A around nutrition and injuries. And then Asker himself will be talking about caffeine for sport, which we discussed caffeine withdrawal back in episode 20A of the podcast with Dr. Chris Irwin. But we've got one coming up later this year about specifically caffeine doses, timing, etc. for performance. Uh, later on in the year and then I'm doing my presentation around electrolytes for athletes do we need them which ones do we need how much do we need how do we know that kind of thing Mm. so yeah if people are interested in that they can um, register at wenutritionconference.com so we wenutritionconference.com and I just had a look out um, and there's uh, you can get in for early rego uh 69 us dollars so yeah just thought i'd take a peek to see the the cost for those that are interested so that's pretty good um mm. with the people they've got for for that conference value for for mm. money yeah and there's mm. also a pre-conference event happening a couple of days before that on the 18th i think as well which is around gut training actually that asker mm. is doing and also sorry i forgot the name of the other guy he works with Ineos grenadiers cycling team okay yeah yeah cool yep. awesome All right, well, let's get into our social media shout-out, Steph. Uh, we've had a few come in on Instagram. We have, which you also alluded to, uh, me too, because I was not paying attention. So Instagram, we had Trail Brew, which is a sports nutrition company based on the Goldie, and they shared episode 10A, which was the question of should I get a sweat test, which you were our expert on now, mm-hmm. and said that the long munch answered this question so well, love the debunking and loving the podcast. So, yeah, thank you very much, Trail Brew. It's great to, to see that a company that actually develops 
you know, sports nutrition products and drinks actually is taking on board, you know, the the evidence and information that you're presenting. So, yeah, mm. that's really cool. Yeah. And then we had Marinus Pettersson. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Um, he's a Welsh cyclist and coach. Uh, and he mentioned, hey, guys, been really enjoying your podcasts as ever and have been referring many of my athletes to them. And he sent through some um, episode suggestions also that we're, we're taking on board. And then we had Jake Sawyer, who is a friend of yours, Al, and yep. he's a keen cyclist, which we're all very proud of where he's living. Where's that? Oh, he's moved to Adelaide in the last couple of years, Steph. He's, he's, yeah. um, his partner's from Adelaide, so they moved back there. <laughs> Um, and he said hello munchies he had a question which was is prehydration is it a thing and if so with what and when should you prehydrate and if not should it be a thing so just I guess answering to that we will look at an episode on optimizing hydration prior to training or a race and another one specifically on pre-exercise hyperhydration which we did briefly mention on episode 28b with Sinead Diver which was um, talking about her preparation for the marathon at the Tokyo Olympics and you know we're going to have some really good information on this one hour because you're working on a, a paper with Chris Irwin if I'm allowed to say mm-hmm. that that's looking at um, aspects of hydration and specifically um, hyperhydration. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So we're going to do a better analysis. So looking at all the existing studies, putting them all together and seeing what comes out of that. So, Mm. yeah. Yeah, awesome. And then on Twitter we had Martin Brilly and he mentioned, hey, uh, love the podcast and the work you guys put out. I have a request. Could you do an episode concerning strategies for weight gain um, for endurance athletes which is what he's referring to is in the context of recovering from low energy availability and we discussed the consequences of low energy availability but we didn't actually go into detail in terms of the recovery strategies and we spoke about that back in 24a um, with Margot Rogers so that's a awesome question and we are going to go and have a particular episode on that. So thank you for that request. And um, he actually is all the way from Finland. Cool. Hmm. All right. And it sounds like, Steph, you've been off the grid a bit and probably not getting a lot of podcast feedback this week. No, no, I've been slack. What about you? No, no, not apart from what we've had through social media. So no. Yep. But that's all right. Uh, Just a reminder that if you have a question for the podcast, and we're getting quite a few coming through, which is fantastic. We we were having a look at this the other day, and we've got almost the next six months worth of podcast planned just based on the questions that listeners have submitted. Uh, But if you've got a question that you'd like to add to that, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, or if you have any other feedback about the podcast as well. So today's episode is episode 46B, What is Metabolic Flexibility and Why Should I Care? with our guest, Neil Vanderplug. So 
As we know, we've had Neil on the podcast before on episode 29B, which was how do I balance eating for training quality and body fat loss. But if you haven't listened to that, Neil is a former elite cyclist. He was a regular in our National Road Series here in Australia and also on the UCI Asia Tour. He was the winner of the 2017 Grafton to Inverell and is also podiumed at the 2015 Australian Road National Championships where he came to the finish alongside the likes of Heinrich Hausler and Caleb Ewan. And during that episode back in 29B, he mentioned that he was going through a period where he felt he was too reliant on carbohydrate and wanted to improve his use of fat during exercise, um, which essentially is like is a form of metabolic inflexibility. So we thought we'd have a chat to Neil about that, what he did about that, how, how it all kind of worked out for him and whether he felt he was able to get uh, or become more metabolically flexible as a result of those changes. So yeah, that's what we're going to speak to Neil about today. Awesome. Let's, uh, let's do it. Yep, let's get into it. Neil van der Plug, welcome back to the Long Munch. Thank you very much, Steph and Alan. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. <laughs> um, so last time we spoke to you was back in episode 29B, How Do I Balance Eating for Training Quality and Body Fat Loss? which um, actually is our most downloaded topic ever and the episode with you is our most downloaded athlete interview. So good thing we got you back on board. Um, (laughs) You were piloting a tandem bike and racing national champs in paracycling at the time that we interviewed you. So is this still happening? And if so, what's the latest Wow, very timely question there, Steph. I was actually just around Daniel Searle, who's the person on the back, the uh, the stoker, I think they call it. <laughs> I was actually at his house yesterday discussing what we were going to do for this summer. So we're still a little bit up in the air, but I think accommodation is booked. We've got in early. We've got accommodation. Yeah. And I'd say we'll probably be there and having a bit of a go but I'm not sure if we'll be quite as fit as last time but yeah I think we will we will be there at nationals once again awesome awesome um and we can't chat to you with the road cycling world champs in Wollongong Wollongong um that's just wrapped up over the weekend without getting your thoughts on the week the entire week of uh, of Wollongong. Yeah. Well, look, it was an interesting week. We actually went down there, uh, my older brother, Daniel, we went down there for the whole week. So we got there Sunday as the time trial was taking place. And yeah, it was, it was a good week. It was actually a bit strange in Wollongong, I'll have to say. Um, a lot of the teams were staying scattered around the place so it was it was quite interesting in that regard in some ways we stayed actually right in the middle of the course and I think a lot of the locals were either just bunkering down or maybe even getting out of town and in fact some definitely were because that's how we got our accommodation we did a (laughs) we did the Airbnb and it was interesting because it was a traditional Airbnb it was just someone's house (laughs) they were leaving we were coming and we were very much just in a random person's house, which was quite, which was quite interesting, yeah. but it was a strange vibe because it was it was fairly quiet during the week and until really the weekend when it really got busy and then Sunday it sort of 
it all sort of climaxed. The weather was fantastic. I think the grand final wasn't on as well, so people <laughs> came, um, you know, the football supporters came and it was it was mayhem on Sunday. But all in all, it was uh, it was a really good week. We had great racing and it was it was fantastic to have such a, a big event, you know, in Australia, close to home. Mm-hmm. Did you get down to the um, the World Champs when they were in Geelong in twenty ten? Yeah, we did. We went down there. Uh, we went down there for that. We got uh, painting on the road. We were painting for uh, Michael Matthews in the under twenty three category at that time. Yeah, which he that won. was roughly the sort of age we were. So it was yeah, it was really good to be able to sort of go out there and and cheer him on now. Yeah, what twelve years later in the elite category. So mm-hmm. yeah, we were we were down there in Geelong, and look, it was quite similar, really big event, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> really hard sort of street circuit, uh, difficult course, and great racing, great atmosphere. Mm. The talk in the lead up to it was all about the magpies. Mm-hmm. Everyone yeah. on social media, all the riders from overseas coming, having never seen an Australian magpie, and they're getting attacked left, right, and centre. Yeah, and it looked like the Australian wildlife was really turning it on. There was even a photo, and I don't know if this was a swoop or just an unfortunate sort of accident, but I think there was even a seagull that was. Oh yes, there was a shot of a seagull hitting a rider, and I was like, "Wow!" Even even the seagulls are getting on board the swooping. This is uh, yeah, it's a real treat for the international Mm. uh, cyclists. (laughs) Um, Awesome, cool. So. We're um, chatting this week about metabolic flexibility. That was a topic we discussed with um, Jeff Rothschild last week. And I guess that is being able to use both carbohydrate and fat as a fuel source and being able to switch between the two in order to kind of try and optimise performance. Last time we spoke to you, um, you mentioned briefly that you made some dietary changes midway through your career to try and become, I guess, less reliant on carbohydrate. Yep. And I think, well, we think this was partly due to some gut issues, but also, as you described, you'd often feel like you were kind of too, I guess, fragile um, and kind of were on the edge of bonking in longer races. So firstly, how would you kind of try and describe that feeling of, I guess, being fragile? Yeah, sure. I think that's that's a pretty good summary, Steph. There were lots of reasons really that sort of added up into be sort of going into this sort of direction. I think also it was partly just interest. I think I was listening to a few podcasts and Um, speaking to a few people who were sort of on a higher fat diet and also just speaking and noticing how my wife sort of responded and, and how, how her body sort of worked. There was, there was lots of factors, but yeah, like you say, yeah, I I felt sort of, uh, use the word fragile, but basically it was just, yeah, it was like, uh, my body was just really reliant on carbohydrates as a fuel. And I think that, it just didn't seem to be very good or, you know, really want to function on fats very much. So I think I might have mentioned last time, like there was a real sort of, um, there's a real sort of memory that stuck in my mind because I actually had a fair few carbs leading into this training session. But I, when I was looking back, I, I remembered that I, I didn't really have any carbs for, for dinner. I had a steak and some veggies 
Uh, and I, I think I must have just been low on carbohydrates, but even from the first sort of effort, I felt a little bit flat and tried to do a few more efforts and just felt worse and worse until I just thought, no, something's wrong. I better get home. And I barely sort of, I barely made it home. Like the speed just dropped off more and more as I was getting closer to Albury. And then, yeah, in the end, I didn't even go up the hill to my own house. Like I went into Maddie's house and just found a block of chocolate and devoured it. And, (laughs) you know, as, as anyone would know who's been in this situation where they've sort of hunger flattered, any sort of sugar just tastes so good. Like the brain just really gives you some strong sort of uh, a strong sense that, yes, this is what we want. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I ate a whole block of um, that lint chocolate. But, yeah, that – and, look, I think that sort of experience definitely didn't or wouldn't have happened later on once I made some dietary changes and and made some, yeah, essentially just – dietary changes I suppose like I got a lot more um yeah I guess you could call it resilient but I think there was definitely just yeah hunger flooding was just less of an issue and then to go the other extreme end of the spectrum my wife Maddie who competed at a, a high level as well in uh continental uh teams most recently the rock salt uh, attacker team or I can't remember if it was rock salt something else but anyway the rock salt team but Maddie, on the other hand, was like super resilient. Like, I, I don't think she's ever hunger flattered. Like, hunger flatting is almost just not something that it seems like she's ever going to do because I think she's just so good at burning flat, uh, flat burning <laughs> fat. Like, I think she really does just burn fat at such a at such a fast rate that yeah, it's almost a, a foreign concept to her. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I suppose the feeling for me was um hunger flat in the moment but also just that i needed to be quite uh careful and just very aware of my carbohydrate intake uh before races like days before the race and also during the race and that can be fairly problematic because uh yeah in in cycling especially it's a little bit different to something like uh or other sports that some of your audience might be more familiar with like triathlon and especially the the sort of long course triathlon where there's no drafting but triathlon and, and running and things like that it's there's there's a lot more predictability and I think it's a little bit easier to sort of stick to a uh, nutrition sort of plan like you can you know wait until the half hour comes up and have your gel like clockwork and you can be pretty certain that that's you know, you can rely on that. But in road cycling, it can be quite not like that. (laughs) You know, you might be on a technical course, it could be sort of raining, and you've got these different parts of the race. So you might have a part of the race that's really off, and it's a great time to feed. But you might have crosswinds, you might have really hectic periods for quite a while, in which sometimes you just forget to eat. Or you just don't really um, have the chance. Like it's just really difficult because the racing's on, and you just, yeah, you just, you just have to be doing other things. So, yeah, the idea of metabolic flexibility made a lot of sense. I thought for road racing, and especially because at the end of the race, you often it, it's not like always just a, an even effort, especially um, at the end of a long race. You know, you need to sprint. So 
I sort of figured that being uh, getting to the final part of a race, if you were better able to conserve your carbohydrate stores, you might be able to put out those race-winning efforts in the last part of the race, which need to be really high power, which you you almost certainly would be wanting to be, yeah, chock-a-block full of carbs and, um, yeah, rapidly just putting out as much power as you can. Yeah. So... Yeah, I definitely had in many long races, as you say, some gut issues as well. That was also part of the part of the equation. But I definitely had quite a few races where the nutrition plan didn't quite work out for whatever reason and I'd really fade towards the end of the race and, you know, got that sort of hunger flat sort of experience. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> And um no, good explanation. Um and did that also happen? in like whether it was really long rides or did it also happen in kind of stage races and also in your training rides was there kind of a particular scenario where you ha- where you felt the hunger pains and the sort of I guess running out of that higher gear did you find that happened in particular scenarios or it was kind of any condition Look, it's more likely to happen in longer, uh, longer sessions, longer training sessions, or longer races. But yeah. certainly, a long training ride, like I could definitely hunger flat. Like mm. if I was on, if I was on a long training ride that was fairly hard, and yeah. I didn't pack any food and I couldn't get access to food, like hunger flat would almost be sort of. I would almost be shocked if it wouldn't happen, you know. And mm. yeah, so it could definitely with definitely more likely to happen in those sort of situations when the intensity is also a bit higher. Uh, Also, yeah, longer races. But as, as I was saying before in that sort of (laughs) that story where I went out and did the efforts, that was short. Like Mm. it wasn't a long, uh, it wasn't a long ride to get to where I was doing the efforts. It was only about half an hour away. Mm -hmm. And I, it wasn't like I felt anything sort of like, there was no pain or anything like that, but I just, wasn't going well like Mm. I just wasn't putting out much power and that's one thing that's really um really good with cycling you've got power meters that can give you a fairly good objective idea with how you're going and I guess running if you're running on the flat you've got something similar you kind of you know the pace that you should be able to do and what you normally do and I was going up the climb and just noticing that it was just I could sort of at least start to hit the power at the start of the session but it was really hard and then it just became harder and harder to hit it and it was not a session that should have been hard to sort of to complete like you know sessions should be able to be completed so yeah yeah, it's just that that sort of feeling of being empty and not going so well it could it could sort of it could occur in a uh, near the start of a ride but less likely like to have that happen you would have to be sort of quite low going in so you know you you've you've not eaten or fueled up enough on carbohydrate in the days before which you know back then sort of probably wouldn't have been like that would have been an unlikely situation because you know I had a lot of carbs like I loved pasta and things like that so I'd be very regularly having bowls of pasta and you know rice and and you know ready sort of things like it yeah so I think my problem would have more been in those sort of longer training sessions and and longer races uh, rather than um, 
yeah, rather than the start of sessions. Like some people get to the, you know, some people get to lunchtime and they're like, oh, I haven't had breakfast, haven't eaten anything. Yeah. That's not the type of person I am. Like, you know, I hear people say that. I'm like, what? How'd you forget breakfast? Like, <laughs> how could that possibly happen? <laughs> Constant eater. Um, and did, did you find that you had a feeling that you were perhaps, I guess, more reliant on carbohydrate than your other male riders or teammates, um, I guess, from what you could kind of observe of how aggressively or not that they fueled with carbs before and during a race and how that kind of translated into performance. Did you find that you sort of appeared more reliant on carbs? I think that with just my observations from being around other riders, I think, yeah, everyone's a little bit different, I suppose. But like, I think back sort of around 2013, I was probably on the more reliant side, but I wouldn't say that I would have been at all a standout mm-hmm. um, in that team, certainly. Like it was, it, I was very, very similar. Like, you know, hunger flooding is something that a lot of people, you know, talk about. And I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe Cam Meyer was, she was leading one of the national championships one year and, and the, 2012 yeah, yeah the, the wheels just completely fell off when he was in a really strong position and i think he put that down to to hunger flooding and it's look it's something that i think is quite common but uh there is a bit of variation and yeah i, I think this is something i've also seen at the university when we've got uh, students coming through and doing the VO2 max test because you can see that some people are burning a lot more carbs from a very early point. And I think that was probably how my body was operating at a very low intensity, burning carbohydrates almost exclusively at at low power. So, you know, Mm. that just means that Mm. you're going to churn through those carbohydrate stores fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's definitely a variation. As I was saying, my wife, she's the complete other end of the spectrum. Like she just, you know, doesn't hunger flat. And there's people that sort of fall somewhere in between as well. Yep. And to me, like looking at it, it, it does seem like looking back now, I think a lot of it does just seem to be, it probably is partly genetic, but I think it does, it does mirror often people's sort of their diet. And people who have got a lot more sort of, um, yeah, I guess a more balanced diet and, and less have less sugary sort of things, they seem to be more resilient. Uh, and then there's other there's other teammates that I've been on teams with who I, I think it was probably one of the big reasons why they weren't able to, um, you know, take it to the next level. Like they were exceptional riders, but they just didn't do so well in longer races. And I think it was just because they were so, you know, they were, they were, <laughs> we sort of joke around. We've got another friend um, in Aubrey. He calls himself a sugatarian. So I think, you know, if you're a real <laughs> sugatarian, it does make it more difficult to sort of perform in those long races. Yep. Mm. <laughs> sugatarian. Yeah, definitely. I like it. <laughs> yeah. And I remember that um, that race with Cam Meyer really well because I, I was there with you guys with Search to Retain uh, on the side of the road and he got, oh, I can't remember how far in front, but he was solo break about 15, 20 minutes up the road at one stage. And in the, you know, in the period of maybe two or three laps, he went from having like a 20-minute lead to being caught by the bunch to being dropped to basically collapsing on the side of the road. It was incredible. Yeah. yeah, it goes, yeah, it, it sort of can happen fairly quickly. Like, yeah, mm. 
the hunger flat once it sort of once it comes it can yeah be not that long like with my efforts like i was sort of at the start of the session you can be putting out okay power and then you know by the end i was barely moving i was going like you know 20k an hour or something just mm. in, in the flat road yep <laughs> yeah, yeah it's exactly right <laughs> All right. So thinking then about, I guess, what happened next, you sort of identified that that was a potential issue that was potentially holding you back, particularly for some of those longer races. What was then the approach that you took to try and improve that use of fat or reduce that reliance on carbohydrate? Well, I guess I sort of probably just changed my diet a little bit at first and just tried to sort of eat slightly less carbohydrate. But there was a, there was a, a summer where I got back from, or well, basically as the season finished, I sort of, I really just, I did a, a fairly extreme change. I basically tried to sort of go full ketogenic for a while. So I tried to really dial back the carbohydrates and just sort of, you know, I, I was using like the, um, uh, an app to sort of, diet sort of diary the all the food and that sort of thing mm. like i was really sort of you know counting the carbohydrates i found it really difficult to sort of keep them you know i think there were some people that were trying to say like you know try and get it to like 30 grams a day which i found like super hard like mm. you know if i could yep. get under 100 that was fairly good but there was probably like a oh, i couldn't tell you just from memory how long it was but it would have been like at least a month or that sort of thing where it was um, probably in sort of November or uh, October, November period where I really tried to just kind of kickstart things along and just had a lot less carbohydrate really. And then I, I sort of did a few patches, I think, throughout that next season where I was I was trying to sort of, um, yeah, just not give my body the option of burning as many carbohydrates for patches. And then after that, like I only did that for a few sort of patches and then I sort of just dialed it back and tried to sort of like tried to just kind of feed myself the 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 fuel that I thought that I was um, probably going to be needing. So I tried to sort of match it a little bit more. So before hard sessions, I'd sort of, you know, fuel a little bit more with carbohydrates. But then on rest days, I'd try and dial them back a bit and also doing a few sort of fasted rides and that sort of thing. So if I've got like yep. a, if I had a, uh, a recovery day, I might sort of like, you know, go out and have, do the recovery ride before breakfast and then have, you know, just a, a more sort of like an omelet or something like that. Something that doesn't have that many carbohydrates and sort of, um, yeah, try and match it that way. And also just, um, yeah, I probably just went away from things like, um, pasta and things like that and tried to go a little bit more sweet potatoes and and vegetables uh rather than sort of bread and pasta so yeah that's what i sort of uh that's what i tried to do mm. okay and, and that first sort of summer where you started sort of going quite extreme in terms of restricting carbohydrate and that's kind of you know november december that's kind of lead up towards nationals time for you guys how did you find your training through that period? Was it okay? Did you adapt quickly or was it horrible? I think it was, uh, I think I remember the first sort of definitely the first little bit not feeling fantastic. Like mm. and I think I was only sort of doing basic sort of stuff. And I think I also started it in a bit of a break. So, you know, the first two weeks I probably wasn't doing any training 
because I tried to sort of schedule it around that, knowing that it was probably not going to be sort of ideal. Um, But, yeah, I did find it uh, like my body wasn't going well, which is to be expected. Like I don't Mm. think my body was very used to, you know, it wasn't very used to burning fats at a, at a sort of decent rate and it was kind of getting forced a little bit. But, yeah, it was interesting. I, I remember it definitely wasn't going fantastic because I actually went and did the Launceston Criterium. And I remember before the Launceston Criterium, I was sort of like it was a race that I'd done quite well at because I'd won it um, I'd won it in the past and got second. And I sort of thought, oh, this is uh, this is not good. Like I haven't been sort of. I haven't been putting out any good power. I've been feeling pretty rubbish. Like there's no way I'm going to have to sort of, or no way I'm going to be able to sort of keep this up. So I sort of got back on the carbs uh, for that weekend. And then, you know, I think I got second. So it, it immediately sort of helped. Like it immediately mm. felt better. So like there was no yep. doubt that it was like, it wasn't sort of like just a smooth transition for me. Um, but I suppose, yeah, I sort of wouldn't wouldn't have expected it to be because, yeah, because how my sort of body was operating. Yep. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, and actually I might just add, I just sort of, um, I should say that that summer where I did try and and and, and put that sort of, um, yeah, really low carbohydrate block in and sort of kickstart that, that it definitely, um, it changed a lot of things over that summer. So, and, and there was actually another rider as well on my team who was doing the same sort of thing. Like, cause we kind of like, we kind of got excited and motivated to do it when we were in Europe the year before. And then we were sort of like looking forward to the off season so we could sort of like give it a go. And uh, yeah, he had the same thing that I had as well, where basically we were trying to be good at nationals and we were both sort of behind schedule. Like we, we were both just not, we just weren't, we just weren't going as good. Like we just, mm. we were kind of both a bit delayed. And I say delayed because we eventually did get, we, we, we got really fit in the end, but we both kind of mistimed it. And we were both going really well in, in March. But like when we were sort of, yeah, when we were, when we were trying to be good in, uh, in January, we weren't as good, but then it sort of came later. And that was where we both had really good rides at uh, the Oceana Championships. And I think Sean, this is Sean Lake. He smashed the time trial at Oceana's and he was, um, I think he got fourth in, he got fourth overall, but there was, it was sort of a funny thing. He was the first elite rider because, um, yeah, there were three under 23s. I think it was like three of the the real sort of hitters now, actually. I think it was Jai Hindley and Lucas Hamilton and Storer or something like that. But um, he did really well in both of those races and, yeah, so it definitely sort of delayed things. It definitely changed sort of the whole equation, I suppose, trying to peak for things. But it was, uh, yeah, it was it was interesting. Mm, okay. And do you think that there was a sort of an interaction with training there? Because I think you'd mentioned, yeah, that your training had changed a little bit around that time as well. Yeah, the, like the training, I'd say, was was probably not, massively different but i think the racing like the nature of the racing changed a fair bit so mm-hmm. when i was racing in australia a bit more earlier on until around 2015 the nature of the national road series races and the races were that they were a bit shorter there were lots of double days and there were lots of sort of like um 
sprints within the races. So mm. you did lots of sprints. Like if you were doing, say, a, a tour sort of around 2010 in Australia, like there would be, yeah, two stages a day. They might be sort of 60K and 70K and they you had time bonuses for like all of these intermediate sprints and there'd be heaps of them. There might be like eight or something. Uh, mm. often a criterium in one in the afternoon and a road race in the morning. So like when you're doing those sort of races and especially when you're going for sprint jerseys, which I often was, or even going for the overall, you're just sprinting all the time. So I think my training probably didn't train so much, um, but I think, yeah, the racing sort of changed quite a bit. And I was doing mm. more sort of tours like Australia because we don't have that many sort of one-day races because – I think it's because there's a lot of travel involved. A lot of the time you have, you know, if you're going to travel all the way to Queensland, they sort of make it a tour. Um, but, yeah, I was racing more in Asia and they were sort of more long long stages and, you know, not, not sort of like intermediate sprints and those sort of things. So I think my training, yeah, overall what I was doing was changing and I think what, yeah, on the bike, I was probably just doing a lot less sprints than than I was perhaps earlier. So mm. yeah, it, it probably did change a little bit. Yep, yep, and that probably reflected. Like if you look across, I guess the things that you did well in the earlier part of your career, yeah, it was you know fighting for points jerseys and sprints and winning criteriums and things like that. Whereas I guess that changed towards maybe some of those longer one day races, like, you know, 2017, you won Graft to Inverell, for example, sort of later on. Yeah. I sort of wasn't a, a complete pure sprinter sort of thing. Like I was a, mm. I was sort of a bit of a hybrid, bit of an all rounder. So I could sort of often get over some climbs and like being able to sort of get through nationals as I was, I was like, yeah, I can sort of, I can get through some harder sort of stages, some, little bit lumpy stages and then maybe sort of do well in these reduced bunch sprints so a lot of the time the training was sort of like trying to get me fit enough to sort of get over the hill but then yeah I was finding that like yeah at a certain point I was like geez I'm starting to get to sort of the point where there's almost no race that I'm going to be able to win here because like (laughs) if I don't have the sprint like you know you get to Mm. the point where you've got these other riders who they're going to climb better than you and they're going to out sprint you. So it's, um, yeah, it's a tricky formula to sort of get right. And that's the interesting mm. thing, I guess, uh, about something like road racing for maybe listeners who aren't familiar with it. There's lots of, there's lots of different types of races and different ways that you can win a race, which is, which is kind of part of the, the interesting part of it. So, you know, you've got riders who, you know, they try and target one type for a while and then they think, no, I'm not actually good at this. I'm going to do something else. And mm. funnily enough, that's what Michael Matthews um, has been sort of saying he's been doing the last few years as well. So he started off more as a sprinter when he was in his early parts of his career. And he's at the point now where I, I don't think he likes, he does, doesn't really like doing that as much. And he really loves just doing more sort of breakaway opportunistic riding and and sort of uh, going to more towards being a bit more of a, a climber slash sprinter. But, yeah, even more just sort of getting out in a break and seeing if you can sort of win from there, which he did in the Tour de France uh, mm, earlier this right. year. So, yeah, yeah. it was it, – yeah, definitely it was partly um, – yeah, I was partly trying to sort of uh, change it for the uh, the type of racing. But, uh, yeah. Mm. Interesting. And you mentioned, obviously, there was that, that first season where you sort of did those blocks of, you know, very low 
carbohydrate intake. Was that something that you then continued on in subsequent seasons or did you feel afterwards you kind of got the balance right and maybe it went too far in one direction? Yeah, I, I kept it up to a certain degree. Like I think I kept up doing a few sort of fasted rides here and there. And I, I think for breakfast in particular, like breakfast I sort of changed. Like I, I didn't have like a real carbohydrate-heavy breakfast like it was definitely a lot lower like I had sort of yeah often I'd have um like an omelette sort of thing or banana pancakes but a banana pancake with just um one banana two eggs so you know if you wanted to be a, a bigger breakfast you, you know two two bananas four eggs or something like that and you mix the ratios up a little bit but you know some carbohydrates but not sort of like you know really sort of dumping them in and that's definitely something that I kept up like I, I definitely sort of kept up a probably lower um, carbohydrate diet and yeah overall probably a little bit less and trying to as I was saying before trying to sort of match it a little bit to um, to what I was doing mm -hmm. yeah so essentially it's not a, a no carbohydrate diet it's I guess that kind of concept what we call fueling for the work required it's having the carbs there where it's necessary but not yeah, and look, overdoing it. it certainly wasn't like, you know, a super low carbohydrate diet. Like it was, you know, mm. there were plenty of carbs in there. But yeah, I was just hoping to sort of, you know, maintain a little bit more of that uh, metabolic flexibility, which I think I definitely yep. did get to some degree. Like I'm, yeah. I'm sure I got better at burning fats and I was probably, um, yeah, able to burn them at a, at a more decent rate and at lower rides, I think I was probably burning a lot more fat than I was previously. Yeah. I was going to ask you actually, was there a moment either in training or, or in a particular race where you felt that things had suddenly clicked and you're like, oh, yeah, now I can see what impact this has had? Yeah, not really. I think it was more just over that season. Like I just sort of, I just sort of gradually realized that, yeah, it was like I wasn't hunger flatting as much and it was it was just a bit sort of it was a bit different like you know you could easily go for longer rides and you know you you were just a little bit yeah you just hunger flatted a bit less and you could have you know you could have uh dinner <laughs> and not have many carbohydrates and you wouldn't sort of be staggering home the next day sort of crawling mm. in for a block of chocolate <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 so it it definitely sort of um yeah, it changed a bit gradually just, I guess, over over that year. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. And then I guess if we fast forward a couple of years, as we said before, you know, you went on to win Grafton Inverall in 2017, which is one of the two really big, long one-day races here in Australia. Um, and I believe looking the other day, your finish time there remains the course record to this day. It was the fastest yeah, had, ever race. Had probably big tailwind, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's um, all right yeah uh, looking back in hindsight do you feel that that uh you know improving your metabolic flexibility really helped for those really long i mean obviously there's melbourne to warnable as well as the other big one but across those two races those really long ones did you really notice a difference in those kind of events yeah look it's hard to say but like yeah i think it was good for those for those longer races like i definitely had quite a few long races where you know i could i could feel really good in in the very sort of like you know the final hour of a a six six hour race that was that was pretty solid but um yeah it's really it's really hard to um 
it's hard to sort of say these things for sure, isn't it? Like, especially mm. when it's just yeah. yourself, you don't know what you would have been like if you, if you didn't do things, That's right. but it definitely, um, it definitely felt like I was less likely to, to have dramas to do with feeding. And I think it was, it was definitely just less of a concern if you did sort of miss a little bit, like if the racing was happening, like it wasn't as big of a problem and you didn't have to be sort of as, as sort of stressed around the race either. Um, mm. But look, I think it's one of those things where like, yeah, pe- like people can still perform quite well you know, without the, maybe as much flexibility. Like I think if you get the carbs in, if you if you burn carbs but you get enough carbs in, then, you know, you're fine. Um, but, uh, yeah. The challenge is getting it all in. Yeah, that's right. It can yeah. be a challenge. And like, like we were saying before, when you start to have a few gut issues, then you're, you're really in trouble because, <laughs> mm. you know, it makes it very, very difficult to get it in at all. Mm. Yeah. And did you ever find, I guess – you know, at that stage where you were sort of more metabolically flexible, did you still notice, particularly, I guess, for either efforts in training or, you know, sort of sprints in races and things that if you'd sort of underdone the calves a bit, you could still feel the difference in terms of that top end power? Yeah, look, potentially, like if you sort of haven't fueled up, um, like if you're a little bit underfueled, but like I sort of, um, yeah, I sort of didn't really play around with it too much. And I think once once I was a little bit more just, you know, having a bit more of a, a balanced diet, I suppose. Like I just didn't sort of, yeah, like I, I wouldn't be sort of pushing it too much. Like it usually just felt pretty good. Like definitely leading into nationals when I was also trying to sort of uh, lose weight uh, before summer, like that's probably when I would have noticed it a bit more. Like there were definitely a few times where, you know, you, you're trying to sort of like lose weight and if and like the more you're trying to sort of, the, the more rapidly you're trying to do that, that's when I would probably notice it more so than sort of like the type of fueling. It would be more just, um, yeah, when you're trying to lose weight, you're not eating enough and you're probably also, um, you know, not giving yourself enough carbs. That definitely sort of, there were definitely times where you'd have days and you're like, oh, I'm feeling flat. I think I just haven't eaten enough. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. And you mentioned before, obviously, at the uni lab doing VO2 max testing with the students. Had you ever done that throughout that period in your career and um, seen how you actually used carbohydrate versus fat at that sort of lower intensity and then higher intensity of exercise? Yeah, I, I sort of didn't do anything like super, super structured. And there was a bit of a gap there where I didn't do it. But I did find like I found a few VO2 max tests from early on, like around that sort of 2012, 2013. And I did see that at very low intensities, the sort of calculation from the from the gas exchange was indicating that I was burning pretty much all carbohydrates very early on at very low yeah. powers. Like I think it might have even been like, you know, at 180 watts or something, um, the ratio was one, which is basically mm. pure carbohydrate burning and yep. then that definitely changed a little bit and it, and it happened later like it might have turned one you know at sort of 250 or something like that like it definitely yeah. was I can't remember and I actually tried to find them this morning but I couldn't find the folder of all of my tests mm. and scans and stuff I think I misplaced it after the last podcast but <laughs> um yeah it definitely um it definitely changed. Like, yeah, mm. it, you could see the difference. And there was one that I did when I was um, in a period where I wasn't 
eating many carbs at all. And it was, it was very different. But the, yeah. the interesting thing with that was I, I wasn't feeling very good. And I don't think I actually sort of was able to sort of, I definitely wasn't able to sort of go as hard, but like, yeah, it was, there was much more fat metabolism going on for sure. And then we also had a few tests with my wife, Maddie. We actually wouldn't have had many because she, she hates she hates those sort of tests. But there were some where she was basically completely finishing it. It looked like it, we actually thought the machine wasn't reading properly um, because there was just very little carbohydrate burning at all. So mm. we think, we, yeah, we don't think the machine was was broken because I, th- I think she had another one where it was similar, but I think she was probably a little bit, you know, metabolically inflexible, but in the other direction. Like, yes. you know, she was fantastic at burning fats, but like her body wouldn't really burn carbs that much. Mm. So the challenge with Maddie for us was sort of like, not that it was a huge challenge, but like I was always trying to convince her to have more carbs and she would sort of carb up for a few rides, but I was trying to get her to sort of, you know, have more. I'm like, Maddie, you know, you might be able to sort of, you might be able to really improve your sort of one minute sort of jumps and your your short power for like five minutes, which are really critical in road cycling because mm. there's sort of these strategic sort of points where, you know, riders are going and you've got to be able to go. And if, if you sort of miss the boat, you, that might be all over. Like not everything is sort of like a, you know, a climb up Falls Creek or something like that. But mm. um, yeah, she sort of, yeah, she, she she definitely sort of came part way there, but she always used to just sort of, yeah, she often said, well, look, you know, I'm sort of going all right. So she just sort of didn't feel the need to sort of change things too much because in crits and things like that, she felt like she was going pretty well. So yeah, but who knows? Maybe if she had more carbs and more carbs around her her training and racing, maybe she would have got a little bit more sort of uh, top end sort of uh, power for the shorter shorter periods. Yep, yep. And I think that's a really important point: is that that metabolically metabolic flexibility works in both directions. Yeah, like it's not just about being over reliant on carbohydrate and not being able to use fat. It can be, as you said, the other way around. And I remember the first time I ever met Maddie. I think was at um, the Cadell Evans. Great Ocean Road Race, and you were out on the bike, and myself and a couple of the search retain guys were heading up to the feed zone. And obviously, you were you'd left the team by then. You were riding with uh, Vanti, or I can't remember what name they had that particular year. And she was walking up there to feed you guys as well. And um, the, the owner of the team introduced me to her, and she's like, "Oh, you're the guy who makes Neil eat all those carbs." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Yep, that'd be me." <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it is. Yeah, and the way I sort of look at it is that yeah, you've you've just got to you've got to get your or let your body adapt and become proficient at what it needs to do or what you'd like it to do. So if you're always really deficient in carbohydrates, then it's not it's not going to be able to burn carbohydrates as rapidly as it could if it was always burning carbohydrates. And look, I think that's the it's probably the challenge like if you are trying to do this metabolic flexibility thing like it's probably not ideal if you're on the track and you're doing all of these short efforts because why would you want your body to be practicing burning fats when it could be practicing burning carbohydrates like you know mm. you, you don't really need your body to burn fats as a track cyclist if it's all short so yeah there's probably nothing to be gained there so yeah it's it's yeah it's it's a it's an interesting thing to, um, yeah, to play around with. Absolutely. 
Um, and just in terms of when you, because you mentioned, you know, you kind of did the keto um, eating for, I think, from memory for about a month or so. Um, was there a reason why you just kind of did it for, for the month? Did you find that you, you didn't kind of need to go that extreme or you found that you kind of got the adaptations that you needed and then you were going more to that kind of fueling for the work required? Yeah, I think it was partly just because I just felt like I only I, I only could do it for so long as well. Mm-hmm. Like in some ways, like it would have been good. I think at the time I probably would have liked to have, you know, maybe go for a bit longer, but it was also just that I just needed to start doing certain training and look, it, as I was saying before, it sort of delayed things already. Mm-hmm. So I think it was partly just, yeah, like, yeah, because you definitely, I wasn't sort of, especially when you're trying to go fully ketogenic, like yeah. you're really changing how your body's operating and it's not, it's definitely, you just cannot do what you need to do. So yeah, I think that's, it was more just because there was, there was races coming up and that's the difficult thing with being a, a road cyclist in Australia. Like the, the races just, they just keep on coming and it's hard to sort of like, it's hard to sort of find time to sort of make those changes because, mm. yeah, there's always a race coming up. And especially when you're on a team, like you sort of, you can't just sort of like, well, you, you probably could negotiate it, but look, you've got your target races, but then you've also got other races that, that you probably want to do for yourself, but you're also sort of helping other people like it. Yeah. I guess maybe mm. if you're not so sort of keen to race, you can do it, but it does make it a little bit harder than, um, especially riders in, I suppose, riders in other countries. Like in Europe, they just have this really defined sort of off-season. Like you've got mm. winter and in the UK, their race season's quite, like it's quite a bit more compressed and shorter. Like mm. a lot of the riders over there, like there's like three or four months where there's just no racing on. So it's much easier, like it would have been much easier in that type of a season to give it a go. But I think a lot of the reasons why I sort of did a fairly extreme hit and then sort of moved away from it a little bit was yeah the the sort of need to start training differently and yeah getting ready for the race there's almost always my biggest bugbear working with the nrs teams is that there, yeah there was nev- never that sort of block where you could have a consistent training block and manipulate things whether it was body composition or whether it's metabolic flexibility or whatever you know you had maybe a an eight-week window around sort of october november and that was about it I mean, I think the NRS calendar's changed a little bit now. It might be a bit easier, but yeah, back then it was it was a nightmare. Yeah, and yeah, no, it's in, yeah, it's interesting. It's probably good to take a few more breaks, actually, just sort of stagger them in and just have a period. And a few riders did that. I remember there were some riders where every now and then they would just say, "Oh, I'm not going to race nationals this year. I'm just going to have a have a, a longer break, and I'm just going to sort of like do a bit more base, not have the stress of racing in this period." and um, and pick it up later but it's yeah it's it's hard to sort of uh sacrifice some of those things Mm. yeah so like reflecting back on that now you know do you think that you would go to to that keto approach or more go towards like kind of just fuel for the work required so just kind of like taper down the carbs and not needing to you know go that extreme because I guess you know, we can get the metabolic flexibility just through the training that we do. You know, you're often doing 
like massive training blocks and double training sessions. So carbohydrate generally can be lacking. Um, so do you think that if you had your time again, that you'd go to, to doing the more extreme approach for the month or you'd go more towards the kind of the, the tapering um, periodization of carbs and fats? Yeah, look, it's always interesting with the, you know, what would you do if you mm. went back? Like I probably would do the same thing. Like it was partly also just kind of just interest as well. Like I just wanted to have a go. Like See how your body yeah, responds. Yeah, so I probably would have done the same thing. But, look, was it the best thing to do? Probably not. But, yep. you know, that's always the way or often the way with your training, your diet, those sort of things. Like mm-hmm. you try things out and sometimes it sort of works, sometimes it doesn't. But I was definitely the sort of person who, yeah, I didn't like to just do the exact same thing all the time. Like I think that was it was partly just I wanted to try something different. Like it was just, you know, you want to sort of play around with things. And, yeah, I, I know a lot of people who are sort of a bit like that. Like there's a there's a character um, who you may have heard of. Uh, his name's uh, Peter Molostic, and he's, he's from around Sydney, I think, and he's always changing things. And I'm sure that's partly just because he just loves experimenting and just loves trying this out and that out. And I, I think it was partly just that. But I'm sure what I did wasn't perfect. <laughs> <laughs> like a, a more moderate approach might have been, uh, it, w- it probably would have been better, yes. But, um, yeah, I'm happy enough with having a crack. Yep. <laughs> and so... Sounds like um, overall you kind of felt that the change that you did make just in terms of trying to get some of that metabolic flexibility and switching to um, reducing carbs depending on your training session, it sounds like you, you did find that that provided a benefit to your cycling. Yeah, look, I think so. I think it definitely, yeah, it definitely provided some benefits for sure. Mm. Like it, it definitely, you know, it, it, there is a lot that changes, I think, like especially when you look at um, people who, you know, have have sort of been doing things like if, you, if you've got people who do lots of fasted activities and things like that, like you can tell that it, they're, they're quite different. So it definitely, definitely had some benefits, I'd say, yeah. Let's get stuck into just the bonus round um, to get to know a little bit more even more about you, even though we've we've learned a little bit prior in, in the previous episode. But um, we know that you're a qualified physio, but what are you doing these days when you're not on two wheels? Well, sort of, I don't know if I've mentioned this last time, but at the moment I've been getting right into soccer. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of less on two wheels and on two feet trying to uh, kick the soccer ball around. So I'm really sort of still enjoying that. Soccer season's just finished. We um, we made finals and got knocked out sooner. But, um, yeah, playing a lot of soccer and doing a bit of running and, and just sort of uh, enjoying a bit more sort of variability, which is nice. I think once you've been really into something like I was and sort of, I suppose, professional for a fair while, like, you sort of miss being able to do other things and mm-hmm. your body does become very, very just, yeah, honed at just one activity. And I think the longer I was just doing cycling, my body was kind of gradually detraining with other things. So it's, yeah, it's good now just to be able to do a bit of this, bit of that, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're just sort of a bit more ready for uh, 
for other things. Like I could probably much more easily just go for a hike up Mount Bogong now. Yeah. Like, you know, when I was riding, that would have been like, yeah, it would have really knocked me around. So, yeah, I'm not quite like a crossfitter who's yeah. just, you know, prepared <laughs> for everything, but, yep. um, you know, a little bit in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, and being able to be, I guess, not too scared of getting injured, you know, like because then that would stop you from being able to ride, whereas now I guess you can do whatever sport you like and not be as worried if you do get injured obviously it's not ideal but that's also nice too yeah it is mm-hmm. um so you grew up around Tawonga Gap and Bright which many Victorian listeners will be very familiar with but what's one thing about that area that they might not know or one thing they should do when visiting that they probably have haven't heard of before yeah look sort of hard i think a lot of people would have explored a lot of the things on offer there but i think if you're a road cyclist i would say that there are way more really really beautiful climbs that are on offer if you get on the mountain bike like i think the gravel bike you could do a few of them but there are just so many beautiful rides that you can do on the mountain bike so yeah if you've if you haven't sort of done that you don't you probably don't need to be super skilled either but like yeah you'd probably get at least triple the number of of really long good climbs if you if you unlock the mountain bike so that's uh yeah that's that's probably something to uh to keep in mind yeah yep and where's one place you'd love to ride um a bike either on your mountain bike or road but you've never had the chance to yeah, I, I'm going to go with Tasmania. I have done some mountain biking in Tasmania and some road racing, but there's been heaps of mountain bike development there over the last probably even more than 10 years now. But they've got some really good mountain bike parks in Derby and and Maydina as well, and I'd love to get over there. haven't had the chance yet, but, uh, yeah, I'm really keen to sort of get a bit more of a, a capable bike for something like Maydina <laughs> and uh, – and have a go so yeah tassie more generally but uh yeah maydina and derby love to get out there nice and favorite sporting moment in 2022 so far oh yeah good question off the top of my head i'm just going to go with i'm just going to go with the the women's road race at uh at the worlds in Wollongong probably because it's just happened and it's fresh in my memory (laughs) but it was a pretty amazing it was a super it it was it was just an amazing race and an amazing finish so just to fill you in the the person who won was Annemiek van Vluten she won the Tour de France she was absolutely one of the the favorites to do well in the race but she had like a, a just a freak crash more or less in the team's time trial a couple of days before crashed really badly as she was going down the start ramp broke her elbow and really didn't look good at all throughout the race like she looked uncomfortable she looked like she was just off like she just she just didn't look like she was going nearly as well and looked like the you know the crash had just affected her quite badly and she was even on the last lap on the climb, she was trying to ride for her teammate, um, Marion Voss, who's a bit of a superstar of cycling. But Voss was also really struggling on the climb and she ended up just, 
she ended up just sort of going along. But like not long from the finish, like within 10K, she's trying to help out a teammate, not not trying to win even. And then there was it was just an amazing finish. There was two groups that came together and she was right at the back of the second group. They caught each other with 1K to go. There was just this moment where the whole group sort of slowed up and it all swelled up and she just took she just sort of took the moment attacked and she ended up winning and she just couldn't believe it like it was it was just a, an amazing sort of finish it was just a perfect move like it mm. was just a an absolute sort of masterclass and just yeah just and she, she just couldn't believe it like after the race she was just in absolute shock like i think she had to get told you know like heaps of times before she even believed it so look, if you if you're not familiar with road racing, it'd be a good one to watch because it really is sort of like, yeah, it's a great, um, yeah, oh, it's just yeah, it was great. And what a great season Adam had overall. She won really the three equivalents to the Grand Tours for women, the World Championships. I think she won at least one of the monuments as well. Um, yeah, you pretty much can't do more in a single season. No, and I usually go for the underdog, but she sort of, you know, she kind of transformed herself into the underdog and <laughs> got yeah. into that status throughout the week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Neil. It's great to hear about your journey with metabolic flexibility. I hope this is something that uh, the listeners can take something from and, and learn from as well in their own experiences, whether they're overly reliant on fat or overly reliant on carbohydrate and how they might go about trying to manipulate that to um to help them with their training and their racing so thanks so much for your time and hopefully we will see you back at nationals on the tandem yeah thanks for having me guys awesome thank you very much neil and now i'm going to hand it over to the one and only Al for the summary of both i guess take-home messages from jeff and um and neil yep so our question was, what is metabolic flexibility and why should I care? And as Jeff mentioned last week, metabolic flexibility is really that ability to use both carbohydrate and fat as a fuel source and have the ability to switch between them as required for optimal performance. So at sort of low to moderate intensities of exercise, you should be fairly good at using fat as a fuel source. And then at those high intensities of exercise, you're able to use carbohydrate effectively to maximize that sort of high intensity exercise performance as well. Now, why should I care? I guess if you're too dependent on carbohydrate, then you have a tendency to sort of hunger flat or bonk quite easily. And that's exactly what sort of Neil described as the, the issue that was confronting him in his training. He felt he was quite a, very susceptible to that and was trying to become less susceptible to that, particularly as I guess the focus of his racing shifted from sort of more shorter sort of criteriums and sprint type events towards more sort of those longer races and longer stage races as well. I guess the flip side to that, though, is if you're too fat dependent and you're not able to use carbohydrates so well, uh, and that usually happens with people that are eating sort of a low-carb, high-fat or, or ketogenic diet, that you know you can go all day long because you can use fat really well at those low to moderate intensities, but often struggle to produce those sort of higher um, intensities or high-intensity efforts um, sustained over you know a few minutes or, or even sort of repeated sprints and things like that as well. So I guess, you know, Neil really described that sort of sense of fragility and, and, and uh, ability to hunger flat very easily in training. And then he sort of went about trying to change that and improve his metabolic flexibility. And he did that through obviously manipulating his diet primarily. 
So, you know, you started off with a period of going, you know, very low carb, sort of ketogenic style diet, but he didn't do that for a long term. He only did that for a few weeks at a time. And he did that primarily in the off season when he wasn't actually training. So he was not doing all that much exercise at that time. And so he didn't really suffer those issues of not being able to produce those high power outputs because that wasn't a focus at the time anyway. And then as sort of racing started to come around, he then reintroduced some carbohydrate and went for more of that periodized carbohydrate approach of adjusting the carbohydrate according to his training and racing needs rather than going the extreme of you know low carb high fat diet which certainly would have improved his fat oxidation or his ability to use fat during exercise but it would have sacrificed his ability to use carbohydrate during exercise so he essentially would have swung the pendulum from one side of metabolic inflexibility all the way across to the other side of metabolic inflexibility. And so what he did is did that as a short-term thing to try and move that pendulum a bit of the way, but then reintroduced the carbohydrate. So he was using both carbohydrate and fat and then just, I guess, was a bit more, I guess, conscious or aware of you know how much carbohydrate he actually needed on different days according to his training schedule and then adjusted that accordingly. So he wasn't going into you know easy recovery rides fully carbohydrate loaded or you know um, reliant on carbohydrate for those and so you know he was trying to get the best of both worlds and get that genuine metabolic flexibility and it sounded like to a large extent although he didn't do sort of extensive or very systematic lab testing through that period it certainly sounds like he was able to achieve that in terms of how he felt on the bike and some of that lab data sort of before and after that he had done he was less reliant on carbohydrate um, after that process had happened so yeah i think it's a really nice example of, of how to do it you know he was very aware that you know that sort of low carb high fat diet yes it makes you very good at oxidizing fat but it sacrifices your ability to use carbohydrate and that's not metabolic flexibility that's a misconception that's just going from one side of metabolic inflexibility to the other and so he was able to kind of work his way through the middle of that and do quite well and i guess the final thing you know, from our conversation with Jeff last week is that a lot of athletes will be inherently metabolically flexible anyway, just simply due to the fact that the, the nature of the training that they do, um, if they're doing really long sessions frequently, you know, they're finishing those with, with low carbohydrate stores and they're getting those adaptations in terms of fat. As long as you're not then over fueling or, or you know, low, and you're having plenty of carbohydrate before and during those sort of easy training sessions um, all the time, that might push you towards sort of metabolic inflexibility. Um, but if, if you're not doing that and you're adjusting and genuinely fueling for the work required, um, inherently, if you're doing that kind of training, you will be metabolically flexible anyway. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And um, as Neil and Jeff pointed out as well, with the metabolic flexibility, just like you said, you could be either way. You could be an awesome fat burner or you could be an awesome carb burner. So for Neil, his partner's actually, it sounds like a, you know, awesome fat burner. So maybe she needed to to kind of become more um, adapted to, to carbs, whereas he perhaps was a bit more on that, that other end. Mm. And as I both said, like if you're doing, you know, 200 milers with no high intensity efforts, then probably metabolic flexibility doesn't matter too much. Mm. Uh, as long as you're not super carb dependent, that's probably not going to be helpful. And the flip side, if you're doing sprint distance triathlon, racing criteriums on the bike or running, you know, 10Ks on the track or even up to half marathon, 
then being able to use fat effectively is probably not going to really make much difference. And so it's maybe not something that's relevant. So it is very much horses for courses when metabolic flexibility is actually important. It's just that for the majority of people, they're probably not at one of those extremes of either super long and slow or super short and fast. They're somewhere Mm. in the middle where this is a relevant conversation. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And I think the other reason um, Neil also looked at it was um, where he mentioned for he was having experiencing gut issues and, you know, for whatever reason, as we know and we've learned in episodes, that there's a number of factors that could be influencing that. But um, it sounds like he was also wanting to reduce his reliance on carbs to see if that helped benefit the, um, you know, managing his his gut issues. And it could yep. go exactly that other way where you mentioned as well, where if you're really good at burning fats, um, then that's not necessarily ideal either for, for the gut because then if you're trying to put in the carbs during training, then you may have gut issues um, because your body's not used to kind of burning through and absorbing that as well. So, yeah, various reasons why people may try to look at undertaking metabolic flexibility. Uh, Awesome. So then I'm really excited for this next episode, Al, and I know our listeners are, and it's a topic that we would see nearly all the time with our athletes asking this question and, and thinking that they need to do it. So it's we're up to episode 47A and the question is, do I need electrolytes during exercise? And we're lucky enough to have Alan McCubbin fly in and talk to us. In person. <laughs> in person. Um, but I'm going to, I know this is going to be one that I'm going to refer to all the time with the athletes that I work with because it's a, it's a really common question we get. Yes, definitely. So this is kind of a follow-up from episode 10A, Do I Need a Sweat Test, which we mentioned actually in the intro, because in that episode we talked about some work I'd been doing at that time uh, around modelling the sodium needs of athletes in different situations and trying to work out what what were the requirements and, and why do you take sodium. And that work's now been finished and published, so we can talk about it. So we'll, mm. we'll go through and talk about that and, and what the practical significance of that is. And we'll touch a little bit on some of the other electrolytes that people think about as well, you know, your potassium, magnesium, calcium, those kind of things too. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and then just to, to wrap up, I guess, so a reminder that if you do have a question, which we've we've been getting a lot of, which is awesome, if you would like those answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And just uh, a reminder that we've got over 40 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you are new to the podcast, welcome. But you might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only actually show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there. And if you want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if you do have friends asking about particular nutrition questions for their training or racing and you're sick of telling them the answer and you've heard it on the podcast, perhaps you might like to let them know and they might like to listen to us. Otherwise, I reckon we'll we'll love and leave you all until next week. Yep, we will do. See you then.